Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snudden. And I'm Rob Olson. The book that we're going to be talking about tonight is The Nice Guys, the novelization. No. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm hoping you're going to explain more. People will be like, what the? I've never heard of this book. It's is it a well, New York Times bestseller. I, you know what? I didn't look at the stats, uh, but is it, it is... A, is it at the top of a Goodreads list? <laughs> is it on the shelf at Walgreens for you to buy if that's where you're it's... getting your fiction from the magazine aisle at Walgreens? I don't know, but that reminds me. Uh, I'm going to totally derail this because I'll forget to mention this um, later on. Uh, you know how we read the the Nick Corpon books um, a while back? The uh-huh. uh, yeah. Queen of the Struggle was the second one. What was the name of the right. first one? Dude, I have Alzheimer's. I'm so old, I almost have fucking yeah. Alzheimer's. So you're going to ask me what a book was called we read like a year and a half ago. We're going to start getting you doing those like logic puzzles and stuff just to keep your yeah, brain. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Nick Corpon had those two books. Um, and the Queen of the, the reason The Queen of the Struggle is, is front of mind is because a uh, f- longtime friend of the podcast, Chris Deal, in um, social media recently or in a private message somewhere, whatever, mentioned that he was at uh, a Woodman's which is a grocery store in Illinois, a grocery store chain. Have you ever been to a Woodman's? I have not. I quite honestly, I know that there's some in Wisconsin. I didn't even know we had any in Illinois. Oh, there. Yeah. Um, actually our, this is, this is so off the rails. Cause I'm like, <laughs> tangenting. This is a tangent off a tangent. Uh, the, the hot dog place where we sometimes meet up to like hand off like books and stuff like that yeah. mm-hmm. across the street from that. They're putting in a Woodman's. Um, oh, okay. Anyway, Chris deal, longtime friend of the podcast is at Woodman's and he sees a paperback copy of Nick Corbin's queen of the struggle for sale in that store. Wow. That's kind of crazy. It's pretty great. So that's awesome. Um, hmm. Kudos to whoever the publisher was for getting that place in like freaking grocery stores. That's pretty cool. So that when you that's said, true. when you said, is this available at the, that's why, that's why I thought of that. Um, it's very exciting. Very exciting. I think that's like a to- weird level to reach, you know, as an author, <laughs> like getting into a traditional bookstore is kind of the ultimate goal, but like getting into a grocery store, like where does that fall on the, you've made it scale? That's a good question. So, um, so let me go back to the reason I said that was, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I've been reading for for many many years, and, and like I remember, I probably would have been in the early nineties, ninety one, ninety two, when I first moved to the suburbs. Like I'd be like, oh, I need a new book to read. Like, but it's like nine o'clock on a Sunday night, and this is really before. Um, God, I don't even think like Barnes and Noble wound up for a while being open really late to like 11, but it was before that. So mm-hmm. I'd wind up going to like Walgreens. And the reason I said that was it felt like it was all either um, at the time, all um, romance books with like the Fabio guy on the cover yeah. and movie novelizations was like okay. all you could buy. And then maybe like, you know, whatever the, the new Stephen King and Dean Koontz. So anytime someone says a novelization, I just picture that the only place you can buy a novelization is at a Walgreens. Yeah. So that's why I said, <laughs> so, uh, all right. And that, that kind of, you know, um, gracefully steers us back toward the, the beginning of the conversation, which is that we're reading the nice guys, which is a novelization of the Shane black movie, the Nice Guys, and it's this novelization is written by Charles R. Day, who uh, I'm not familiar with, but this is his very brief bio. Um, he is the founder and editor of Hard Case Crime and the Edgar Award-winning author of the acclaimed novels Little Girl Lost and Songs of Innocence. What a great bio. Yeah, wonderful bio. Yeah, Charles, nice job. Both of those titles sound familiar, and I don't know if it's because I've heard of the books or they just have like... Like, just clutch titles. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I feel like Hard Case Crime is something I've heard before. Yeah. So that could be... It's all very, like, mm-hmm. like it's right at the surface, but nothing mm-hmm. that I... Yeah, yeah. All right, here is the synopsis for the book. <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing, or is this... We're, we're, I have to ask, because I don't know if this came from IMDb oh, or from Amazon. Or, okay. yeah, this is the <laughs> from Amazon synopsis for the novel. Uh, Holland March is a private eye with a defective nose and a broken arm. Jackson Healy is the tough guy who put him in a cast. 
Not the two most likely men to team up to hunt for a missing girl or look into the suspicious death of a beautiful porn star or go up against the conspiracy of the rich and powerful that stretches from Detroit to D.C. Hell, they're not the most likely pair to team up to do anything. But there you go. And if they somehow survive this case, they might just find they like each other. But let's be honest, they probably won't survive it. Yeah, it's a pretty decent synopsis. Uh, yeah, I have no, I have no issues, no issues at all with yeah. the synopsis. Um, so we are going to talk about this as a story, and then kind of maybe talk about the difference—not uh, that there are many differences, but the differences experience between reading the book and watching the movie. Yeah, here's here's the setup. I had not seen the movie, which should surprise nobody that's listening. Um, <laughs> I, I saw it yesterday, but I had not seen it up until now. Um, I opted to read the book first, which is uh, maybe a little weird. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll talk about that when we talk about novelizations in general. But uh, Rob had seen the movie, was a big fan, was looking for a novelization for us to review, mostly so we could have the conversation about novelizations. Um, so he saw the movie probably eight times. Then he read the book and I'm just going to guess he watched the movie one more time, but I'll I'll let let, let you tell tell everybody. It's a pretty accurate eight times, seven times. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's actually very accurate. Yeah. I just don't know how you can watch every, (laughs) I don't want to say every movie, but there's so many movies. You, I do have a few movies to go in my wheelhouse. So last night, um, I knew I didn't have to finish this movie and I put on old boy, but it was mostly for background noise. And when I say that it's, it's not in English. So it was literally background noise unless I looked up at the TV for a while. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you like a movie, it immediately goes into like a, you know, double digit viewing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when our friend Jesse was in town, Jesse, um, Lawrence, we watched it together. All right. Yeah. So, um, Let's go ahead and kick it off, man. You start telling people what this is about. So I was thinking about this uh, earlier about the best way to describe the movie because um, it's it's uh, or or the story, I guess I should say it's it's got a bunch of kind of disparate parts that only stitch together when you look at things a certain way. So I guess like if we're talking plot, the easiest thing to say is Holland March and. Jackson Healy are the protagonists, as mentioned in the synopsis. March is a private detective, and Healy is like the guy that you hire to beat someone up when you're mad at them or something. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's a little bit of there's several things going on. March, the thing it's it's kind of made clear in the beginning of the movie that he's uh, he's got some somewhat compromised morals because. He makes most of his uh, money um, with uh, uh, people in retirement home, like having him investigate little things. Um, And he'll take on cases that maybe he knows they're like, like they're not going anywhere. Anyway, he gets hired by this woman to uh, look after trying to find her niece who had recently died, but after dying she thought she saw her somewhere so he's on this case um and at the same time jackson healy is being hired by random piece people to you know beat people up or, or that type of thing where they intersect is in the process of trying to find um the woman's niece who is porn star misty mountains um he gets on the trail of this girl named amelia Amelia hires Jackson Healy to prevent March from continuing to try to find her. Not bad. Not bad at all. So far, there's a lot more. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we'll see how much we get into from a plot standpoint. But um, another uh, important character is Holly, who is uh, March's daughter. She's 13. She's a precocious 13-year-old who pretty much understands all of her dad's bullshit. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, she pretty quickly, um, you know, becomes endeared to uh, to Jackson Healy. And eventually, you know, like you want to say, like, it's about the two of them, but really like the three of them team up on a search for Amelia. Mm-hmm. And that search will take them um, pretty much through the the kind of porn industry in, in Hollywood. Uh, in the process of all this, um, the 
the investigation it, it goes a bit deeper and it involves um like it says the from detroit to dc um just some shady dealings with the government and um how that ties in with amelia and the porn industry um so what what started out as a simple find this person don't find this person thing turns into a deeper this person got into something with the government and now things are unfolding and and kind of the priorities shift from find this person to uh, uh other things altogether like to the point where they're taking on some pretty influential people mm-hmm. it felt very um by the numbers i mean with the exception of this march and healy team up and and the daughter being heavily involved in in every aspect of this investigation um mm-hmm. Uh, you know, unwittingly, at least on March's part, to have his daughter involved. Um, it was pretty much a by-the-numbers um, detective story, right? So yeah. once once you get past, you know, the reason for looking for someone, there's always, like, that deeper thing. Like, you have to uncover the entire mystery during the course of looking for someone. And then, obviously, it's always much bigger than, than what you thought it was going to be at the beginning. So that's very kind of by the numbers. So from a story standpoint, depending on how much we talk about it or whatever, like, it's fine. It's not a new story. Um, you know, some of the elements of it are different, but it's very similar to uh, plenty of other PI novels that, that we've uh, read, but either for this podcast or, or on our own, I would say. Would you agree? Yeah, it's just it's a tight story that doesn't try to paint outside the lines on anything um, where it becomes uh, special is just in the delivery of the story, I think. And like, like you said, some of the idiosyncrasies of the characters and stuff like that, but otherwise it's a very, very tight, very straightforward detective story. Yeah. I think for me, um, you know, the, the, the one area that this really shines in, because like I said, from a story standpoint, I don't think there's anything really special about it. It's that interaction between the characters. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's super interesting to have two people that start out at, at complete opposite. So because this is like six minutes maybe into the movie, um, you know, Healy is hired by Amelia, as Rob mentioned, to, to put uh, March off of looking for her. So the way that the two of them are introduced is March has a knock. Here's a knock at the door. He goes to the door and immediately gets punched in the face and essentially, for lack of a better, gets his ass kicked by by the guy who then, be, you know, very soon after 15 minutes into the movie or whatever, 50 pages in the book, you know, essentially becomes his partner when they decide to join together on the, the search for, um, depending on how you look at it, either Amelia or Misty Mountains. So, yep. Yeah, and it's the it's it's the strength of the characters and how they're written and, and really how they're delivered um, that makes the story entertaining. I, I'm not. I was going back and forth about whether I was going to mention this uh, or not, but um, have you seen the Big Lebowski? <laughs> no, of course not. So. Um, it's similar in as much as uh, the Big Lebowski, when you boil it down, is just a classic, like, hard-boiled detective story, but um, told with, like, the most cartoonish, fucked-up, weird characters in a modern setting that it makes it kind of its own thing. And it's actually, from what I understand, either inspired by or almost like a beat-by-beat remake of uh, The Big Sleep, I think which is like okay. a classic noir film mm-hmm. or a detective film or whatever. Yep. Um, so this kind of does a similar thing where like Livius was saying, you know, very straightforward detective thing, but the, the, the unique part is, is the, is the characters. And so I will be at points during this review, kind of quoting from uh, the book slash movie. Um, there are some just interesting characters um, and, and, and the, even the characters that are very throwaway, um, because of the way the story is written, end up being like memorable. And and the example I'm going to give is Chet, <laughs> um, who is a self-described projectionalist, mm-hmm. which I always would just say projectionist. Okay, that's but, uh, what everybody would say, except for Chet. Uh, 
Chet calls himself a projectionalist, and he's like a throwaway character. He's obviously a character that was thrown in because he had information about Amelia that, you know, March and, and Healy needed. And so he was useful for a moment. But like throughout the book at several times, Chet is like a, a useful character. But the way that they care, like the way that they like the, the way they feel about him and the way that he acts and stuff just makes him memorable. Like later on in the story, and I won't spoil what's going on, but something happens and they, they realize it was Chet that was involved and they and they only refer to him as fucking Chet. Or mm-hmm. like in a discussion they'll say the Chets of the world or something like that. So even such a throwaway character becomes memorable in the way that this story's told. Yeah, I um, I thought about that too. So this kind of follows on my whole like this is by the numbers detective um, story. Mm-hmm. You know, I was reminded of like the Elvis Cole books, which I know I've mentioned on the podcast before by Robert Crace. And and I, I feel you know not to get into my wrap up, but I feel about this story um, the the same way I do about those books. Like the story was it was okay, it was fine, but really it's the character and the interaction between the characters that that really makes makes the book. And that's how I always felt about the Elvis Cole novels. The thing that most closely that we did on this podcast, though, that this reminded me of, especially the movie, and this this kind of touches on what you were saying about some of these um, side characters, is The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Okay, sure. So that was a little more... So, okay. A lot of these characters were a little, I think, a little sensationalized. Mm -hmm. And then Ford Fairlane would take that a step further by making them like actual caricatures of real people. You know what I mean? But it's kind of that same, the same thing you're looking for in that movie. They're looking for Zuzu petals, Zuzu petals, not really sure why, but they uncover this whole, you know, kind of conspiracy. And it's kind of the same thing in this only there are different levels. Like we could have seen, and I wish a movie would come to mind right now. That's exactly like this, but the, it's the hundred percent straight lace version. Mm-hmm. Then this would be like the mid range. And then Ford Fairlane would be the like kind right. of out there version of the detective story. For sure. One thing, because we haven't really, we've been talking more like ambiguous about whether we're talking about the movie or the novel. I want to point out that the novelization um, is profoundly faithful to uh, especially the dialogue, but like most of the beats of the movie. So um, that is my way of saying that uh, Shane Black wrote the script for the movie. The novelization obviously adapted off of that. Um, if you're a Shane Black fan and you like his type of humor, that carries through very clearly into the book. Yeah, there's only one scene that I can think of that was absent from the movie, and it's the very first scene. Um, maybe not the very first scene. It's when um, the the Misty Mountains um, a- aunt, right? It's her aunt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, when she hires March is absent from the movie. Yeah. So it like the implication is that that happened before the movie started from where we're seeing it. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the book, there's an actual scene where, where he goes to see, or she comes to see him. I don't remember either way. They have a conversation about what happened. We find about it through discussions with other characters later when you're watching the movie. Yeah. And then there was another thing. Really. The only thing that the novel expand novelization expanded on was stuff like, um, in the movie, um, Holland March goes to a bar uh, looking for Amelia and gets some information, asks if, uh, like, the guy knew she was there, and he asks if she paid by credit card, and blah, blah, blah. There's a funny thing that follows that. Um, in the in the novelization, there's a scene before that scene where he's at a different bar discovering which bar he has to go to, and he's got kind, oh, of, that's true. And he's yep. got kind of like a, a history with the bar owner. And so that's a little bit expanded on, but almost not at all. Um, but otherwise, yeah, the novelization is is practically beat per, beat for beat identical mm-hmm. with, with the movie. The yeah. one thing the novelization does do, which I found myself very appreciative of when then watching the movie, is um, expands on like every character's backstory. Yes. Down to... There are two throwaway characters in the the climactic mm-hmm. scene where like you you know that they're brothers and you get like just this like little one or two paragraphs that gives you a feeling that you understand more about the character, even though they're they're fully disposable characters who, you know, 
are completely disposed of pretty quickly. And I mean, they've literally got 40 seconds of on-screen time, but you get a little bit of backstory. And one of the things that I didn't feel the movie did like a good job of where the, and I don't know if it's important or not, but I knew this information because I read the novelization is like Healy's struggles with alcohol. Yeah. It's only ever implied in the movie. Right. And, and, And I don't even know if it's implied as much as just like, he just doesn't have a drink. You know what right. I mean? Like, and, and, and you get, so there's backstory, not just on him, but on March's um, wife who, um, who, who has died in a fire, <laughs> you know, and it's really not, not mentioned very much at all. I mean, you know, so the novelization really expands and for me gives more depth to the characters, which mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed more um, than what I got in the movie. Yeah, and and I think that goes to um, because I saw the movie first and several times. Um, for me, re- it's funny because reading the novelization, I was like, "Oh, I can see why this doesn't matter." Like in my mind, seeing that uh, that additional characterization after being very familiar with the movie, I was like, "Oh yeah, no one needs to know this." So it was like, <laughs> so he's basically having the opposite reaction to what you had. <laughs> and again, depending on on how you saw him, so there's a yep. very good chance that I just think that was all real wasteful if I'm reading the book after I knew the movie, but not knowing literally anything about the movie other than it's kind of like a buddy detective kind of movie. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I'm taking it all in very seriously about these characters and their backstories and stuff. And I guess what it comes down to is kind of a little bit about that part about why novelizations. Um, you're never going to find. All right, and I say you never. You're not likely to find too many people that are going to say, "Well, I like the movie better than the book." But this is a little different. We've done novelizations before, at least once. Um, it's based on the script, so essentially, if you don't flesh out the story anymore, or you could just print the script and sell that for six bucks in a paperback, right? I mean, essentially, yeah. you have someone, um, you know, where it says exterior house, you would have to say, you know, the house was white and had a beautifully manicured lawn. And then you could just drop in some more dialogue or action right. points from the script. So I think that's one of the things that novelizations brings is a richer detail, um, not just in the description of the house, which you see once and it's off the screen and we're going to spend four lines on it, reading it in a book. But that character backstory, I think is there's another thing too. Sorry. I just, cause this just occurred to me. There's in the book, there's like the thing about Healy and his father and I'm not going to oh, get into yeah. it. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. But in the movie, it's just that line where Healy's girlfriend or wife tells him she's been sleeping with his father, which really doesn't match a whole lot in the novelization <laughs> with his feelings about his father. Yeah. Did you get what I'm saying? Yep. Like, so that was almost like it's a mistake in the novelization that maybe that whole part should have been rolled back a little bit or, or done differently. Right. Yeah. I definitely liked the see. And that's the thing because, that's like the introduction. To, that's the whole introduction to Healy in the mm-hmm. movie is he, he's reading that word a day calendar thing and it's equanimity. And, uh, you know, he, he accepted her betrayal with equanimity and then it cuts to mm-hmm. the restaurant scene. I'm fucking your dad or whatever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, in the book, I, I, I didn't gel too well with like, I liked a lot of the Healy backstory, but the father part wasn't really super necessary. I, I kind of glossed over it cause I just wasn't really into it. Yep. Um, did you have any quotes or anything from, uh, I, I, um, so, and you know, I don't have my Kindle with me, but yeah. I figured I do, you would have some, and, okay. and I do, I do have a couple of things that, that I'd like to address. Um, either that I liked or didn't like, um, but uh, projectionist was definitely one of them because yeah. I thought it was great, and I, I I really liked the. Um, it's that kind of thing that makes a movie more endearing. Yeah, just that stupid thing because the next time you hear projectionist, the next time I hear projectionist, I'm going to think projectionist. If I ever have to to talk about a projectionist, I'm going to refer to them as a projectionist. Yep. You know, I mean, it's going to be something that's, that's probably with me for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I will kick off before you get into quotes, though. Um, Jackson Healy lives above the Comedy Store, yep. which is an actual place in L.A. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, he actually um, cites in the book, at least, Mitzi, who is the owner and, and I guess founder of the comedy store, which I thought was a nice real life touch. Yeah. As far as, you know, it's a real place. The outside of it, at least the sign they used outside looked like the real sign. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, like you know, grounded homage. in reality like that yeah i if i ever am back in la which i really have no plans to be um the comedy store is one of the places i actually really want to go so yeah that's why it stuck out to me when i saw it i was like oh hey i want to go there so and especially with healy's character being so like unfunny like he's such a like a dour guy he never tries to be funny he's very Mm -hmm. straight um, mm-hmm. so the fact that he lives above a comedy place is actually kind of funny in itself. <laughs> I agree. So one of the, one of the benefits of having watched the movie several times is like you pick up on the small things and one of my absolute favorite parts of, of the movie. And I think it was brought up by, um, Jesse Lawrence or, or a friend of the podcast, Misty, who are also obviously big fans of the movie. Cause everything I care about, they care about as well. Um, the and stuff thing that happens multiple times throughout. Did you catch mm-hmm. that? I did. So like uh, whenever Holly says is talking and she ends a sentence with and stuff, or she says that um, uh, how uh, March will correct her. And so the example um, sh- they, they go to this party is like a porn party and she sneaks in, uh, in the trunk of his car. And as they're kind of arguing about her going away, she said, uh, there's hor- there are whores here and stuff. And he says, honey, don't say and stuff. Just say there are whores here. And that mm-hmm. is repeated, uh, that, that gag, a couple other times. And one time it's turned where someone is saying something to Holly and it, like uh, reflexively she does the thing where she says, don't say and stuff, just say, and then the, the sentence. And that was like super endearing to me because... I feel like that's very authentic um, mm-hmm. when you grow up in a situation where something is, is said or repeated or, or whatever you adapt naturally adapt that type of behavior to, so to see her do her dad's thing with Ann's stuff, I thought was fucking excellent writing. I mean, I'm going to go one step farther and I'll, I'll quote the line. <laughs> this is a, <laughs> she's sitting with a porn star and the porn star says about someone that Holly's inquiring about, oh, he was with this woman, blah, blah, but they were doing anal and stuff. And Holly looks at her and says, don't say anal and stuff. Just say they were doing anal. So good. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a 13 year old kid. There were some parts in there, though, with that kid, like and things she shouldn't be like. She's literally sitting there watching a porno movie with some guy and a, yeah. and a, and a porn starlet. And I was like, it's like pushing my my comfort bounds around, yeah. you know. A little it was, bit. It was so. set in the seventies, so things are. A little Listen, I, I lived in this. I wasn't thirteen in the seventies, um, but I, I don't think it was actually okay for kids to watch porn then either. Um, another kind of similar dialogue thing that I thought was great was uh, um, there's a couple. So uh, in the in the beginning of the story, Holly has her thirteenth birthday at a bowling alley. And there's a couple of really great lines in the bowling. There's a lot of great stuff happens in the bowling alley. Cause that was really like the turning point from kind of act one to act two is, is the, the bowling alley. And, um, at one point, uh, you know, all the girls who are Holly's friends are all yelling over each other and March is trying to get them to talk one at a time. And he says, Jesus Christ. And this one girl, Janet says, you took the Lord's name in vain. And March says, no, I found it very useful, Janet. It's fucking great. So good. I agree. Um, and then uh, Healy refers to Misty Mountains as a porno star, and uh, March uh, corrects him to say young lady, porno young lady. Mm-hmm. Like the problem was the word star, not porno. It's fucking great. Yeah, so good. My favorite scene um, in the book and in the movie, both both of them um because i was really like i really enjoyed the scene in the book and i was like there's no way this is going to be as, as, as good on screen <laughs> as it is in my head and i was completely wrong um is the scene in there's a scene in a projection room yeah. and <laughs> yeah it's there are multiple points in this in this and i don't like i don't want to give it away you know as a spoiler but there's the thing so at one point Mar- march decides to look for something that isn't there <laughs> 
And I'm tell like I was I was like, oh, this is gonna be such a letdown in the movie because I really, really loved it. And then that's immediately followed up by by an intervention by Holly that's also just yep. and they're really, really funny. Um, for, for somebody who doesn't really care for like comedy movies. And I don't know the, how much I would consider this a comedy movie. Um, but right. it's definitely a movie with some funny stuff in it. And, and I mean, and again, sens- sensationalized. Um, and we'll talk about that a little more, too. But I will say that's my favorite scene is when they're in the projection room later on in the movie. Um, th- start to finish. I love that scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many individual beats that are great like it's just one thing after another like how march interacts with the woman who's there who we haven't mentioned before mm-hmm. um yeah tons of awesome stuff um so i guess overall what i what i the impression i have of of the story which uh you know goes both for the movie and the novelization is that it is um built on the framework of a basic detective story is this really endearing story of a handful of fucked up people in a situation that nobody could have ever anticipated. And it's the quirkiness of the individual characters that makes it so entertaining. There's nothing really special about the story. Like Livia said, it's the things that the people say and how they they interact with each other. That is uh, what makes the story so special and for me so rewatchable and and when i saw that there was a novelization um i had a couple other titles in case livia shot this down but i didn't try too hard to to mention other oh. ones oh can we please hear what some of the other ones were do you know uh, it's yeah. How do you yeah. well there's uh as far as novelizations go it, you're gonna find tons of like sci-fi and fantasy ones and i and i knew we weren't gonna want to go that direction but like um the big one that i thought I, I could probably get you to to swing you in the direction of if you were on the fence about reading a novelization. What is the book for the movie The Thing? That would have been just like this. I haven't seen the movie or read the book. You still haven't seen it? Didn't David James Keaton freak out on us? He might have. Wow. David um, James Keaton does not dictate what I watch on my television. Obviously. <laughs> just wanted, I just want to get that out there. So. Which is funny because he has a movie review podcast. So that's kind yeah. of. So like, I'm sorry. He probably doesn't. He probably doesn't read all the books we heard right either. So mm-hmm. I think we're. I think we're okay there. Um, uh, yeah. I'm. I'm really glad we did it. Um, because novelizations, like I said, we 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 did one previously for the Rob Zombie movie, and there are other reasons why we did that. We weren't burning to read a novelization, right? Like, mm-hmm. close ties well, to the author yeah. or whatever. I mean, so. And I know we did a little bit of comparing and contrasting there, and, and I think we both agreed that we liked the book better than the movie. Um, I'm, I'm in the same boat here. Uh, and, and again, I think it's just that added depth. Um, I also found, and to be fair, I think that these were all delivered fine in the movie, okay? But there are interactions they had that I found funnier when I read the book than I did the movie. So that, that huh. scene that I talked about that I liked, I think was on even keel. Like, like was exactly... I enjoyed it exactly as much as I did in reading the book and, and you know, without getting into details or, or whatever, but like the Healy like noticing the repetitive things that March does. So there, there's the scene and, and Rob can bl- cut part of this up. But so that scene, um, I, I don't know. It was funnier to me in the book and I'm not saying there was anything wrong with the delivery. It was just one of those. Maybe it's cause I already knew the joke. You know, maybe I already knew the funny part, so, right, it, didn't, so it didn't land. You know, well. so it's hard to say, but I still thought it was good in the movie. I just I didn't I didn't feel the same. I wasn't as endeared to it as I was in the book. And there I did mark down, but there are a lot of things that when I saw them in the movie, I, constantly I was asking myself, "Did I like that better in the book?" And the answer was almost always yes. All right, probably with the exception of the projection scene. I have two examples that I'm really interested to hear whether you liked the movie or book version better. Um, so, and they're, and they, they won't spoil anything. Uh, the first example that I want to know is, um, the, (laughs) at the protest. All right. I didn't, I didn't make a note to talk about the protest. The (laughs) protest was also very well represented in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you think even keel on that one? Yeah, yeah, I think right. even even to the book. And, and a great scene, too, I might add. Fucking Terrific. hilarious. How about nobody wants to see your dick, dude, that conversation? Yeah, I didn't. Um, yeah. 
I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I thought it was funny in the book and in the movie. I don't really like I remember seeing it, but I didn't really have a reaction to wow. it in the movie. I guess. So I'm guessing I like the book better. It's but it wasn't something. Because yeah. it's so like yeah. March is just letting the situation get away from him. And like the way that it comes off in the movie is fucking great. Yeah. I was impressed with the writing. Yeah. And and for somebody who doesn't care for like standard comedy stuff, I found a lot of it very funny, um, which I enjoyed. And I mean, like I said, this is getting into wrap up territory. So I'm, I'm probably just going to push forward um, in that. And we can continue to talk about the movie. I um, it wasn't a great story, you know. It's not a good story. I mean, like, that's like, I can't recommend this based on the story. But what it was was really entertaining. And I've said this before, there's a value in that. So I would never hand this book to somebody or, or give them the movie and go, This is a great movie, man. I'd give someone this book or this movie and go, Hey, read or watch this. You know what? It's a lot of fun. And, and I think that that's where, where it carried off. I had some, like, there were times where I thought it was a little too over the top. And, and again, there may be some clever editing here or whatever. But in the, you know, the climactic scene, that movie can rolling and rolling and rolling, both in the book and the movie, were terrible. Like, I, I just I couldn't embrace that part. Like, it got so far away. And then there are some other things, too, that, that happen, like the really super coincidental things that, that happen. Like I just don't like those types of things in movies. Um, but um, for the characters and for the the entertainment value of, of the dialogue between the characters and stuff made it really enjoyable and really overcame a lot of like if we were reviewing this as a straight book uh, without like the like the, if the characters weren't funny if this was that jk rowling detective book it would get like two stars from me from a story standpoint and for me what the redemption was in the book and in the movie was was the the dialogue and the humor and uh and a pretty interesting how do i say this like Shane Black, you said, is the guy who wrote the script, right? Yeah. He, um, his thoughts on what's actually good humor um, lined up pretty well with mine, at least in this outing. I don't know if I've seen any other Shane Black movies that he's written or, or whatever, but at least in this one, the sense of humor really gelled well with mine. So, um, you know, overall, I'm going to give I'm going to give him the same. No, I can't give him the same. I'm going to give the book four point two five stars. I'm going to give the movie four stars. I was really nervous about where you would land on this whole thing altogether. Um, because sometimes I get so like up my own ass about something that I can't like objectively think how someone else is going to, you know, mm -hmm. feel about it. And this is definitely one of those stories. Um, so I'm happy that you gave it the rating you did a little surprised. I but really, happy. it was a lot of fun. And like I said, it, it's that, it's that balance. You know, when I, we talked about the three Musketeers, right? And I go, that was great. That was a great story. That was written. That's great writing. It's whatever. And this is fun. You know, I mean, it's two different things, but my enjoyment level was similar. Yeah. yeah you good. know, I mean, like how I personally enjoyed myself. So one was a little deeper. The other one was a little silly. <laughs> but you know what? I had a good time reading both. So, so uh, what I'm hearing is if we're on one of our conferences or something like that and we're hanging out in the house one night and nice guys goes on, it's not going to be the worst thing in the world for you. I mean, I've, I've already seen it. So I would look to see something else, but no, I, I listen better than some of the other things you guys watch on repeat. All right. That's fair. All right. I'm going to do a quick wrap up uh, as well. Uh, anybody who has been listening to anything we've said so far understands that I really enjoy the movie and that's easily five stars for me. I think um, Shane black, when he does this style of movie, fucking kills it uh similarly there's a movie called kiss kiss bang bang um that is is like kind of a quintessential shane black movie uh and also amazing um even the other stuff he does like the lethal weapon movies have that kind of irreverence to him even though they're more serious and more straight action did he um, write those yeah oh wow i actually have seen a lot of his movies as i was asking you that i was just loading up his imdb page yeah yeah, the dude is, uh, and then the Predator uh, movies, uh, I don't know if he did all of them because there was all those weird, you know, sequels and stuff, but the original and then the one that just came out recently are his. Iron Man 3 somehow was his. Anyway, um, really a big fan of his style and especially for this movie of Shane Black movies, I would say that currently this is absolutely my favorite of his. I just think it's 
uh, amazingly watchable. And now with the novelization, I was very nervous to see something that I cared for, you know, adapted into a new medium. But I was hopeful because Brian Evanson elevated um, the Rob Zombie movie Lords of Salem in so many ways. This didn't, and that's not a bad thing. Um, it was a very faithful um, adaptation into a new medium. And like Livia said, it did kind of flesh out some information that uh, we didn't get in the movie. And that's kind of the benefit of a book. It's at your own pace. Um, you don't have to uh, account for the fact that this is all acted and, and like there, you know, there's pacing issues and stuff like that. So um, fleshing out the story in a novel makes plenty of sense. And I think that with the exception of, like we talked about earlier, Jackson Healy's dad, everything that was fleshed out, you know, added to the story. So um, while I would absolutely make the movie a five-star movie, I'm going to go three and a half stars on the novelization. All right. Novelizations, bro. Novelizations. So there, <laughs> there are questions we should, we should probably ask and talk about. So like who reads a novelization? That's, that's, one of the big that's honestly probably the biggest reason um i wanted to when i thought about novelizations and 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 it, and it occurred to me oh we've never really talked about one in the context of talking about novelizations that was like the thing that was most interesting to me because in the very digital age we have now um it doesn't seem like there's as much of a reason to have a novelization um so my thought when we started talking about this was fanboys, right? It has to be, but I just like, all right, you're a fanboy of a lot of movies, a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah. How many novelizations have you read that weren't for this podcast? Oh, this is no, none. Right. How many do you own? Did you buy some just to have them? Do you have like a Scott Pilgrim novelization somewhere that like just to have it? Well, uh, Scott Pilgrim was adapted from books, and I that's from a comic book history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, but I do own one novelization that was given to me as a joke. Um, (laughs) I think I told you this before: the snakes on a plane novelization. Mm -hmm. Someone saw it and they were like, "Oh, ha ha! I'm going to get him because it was a coworker who knows I review books. This will be funny. This is you know, this is a book that would never be taken seriously." Mm -hmm. However, the novelization of Snakes on a Plane was written by Krista Faust who is like one of uh, yeah, that's like a right. big time mm-hmm. crime mm-hmm. author. So yeah. I was like, are you kidding? I love her stuff. <laughs> they were like, what? <laughs> my, um, my first thought when I was, I was thinking about this, as I mentioned while reading the book and then while watching the movie was that when novelization started, there probably, I mean, not probably there wasn't like, like home video. Yeah. So if you went and saw, I don't know, I don't know if there's an actual novelization, but let's say you're 100 years old, you went and saw King Kong, the original black and white King Kong, right? And you wanted to relive that. The only way you could do that was through a novelization. There was no right. home video. There was no DVD. You couldn't. There was no Netflix. There wasn't even like like. Uh, well, I mean, there's maybe TV. But I don't think they were adapting movies to television at that time. Like you know, where if it you know a year later it just showed up on TV. It's true. You'd have to um, wait for it to show up in a like a screening in a theater near you again or something, right? Like hope yeah, that it would so, happen. But you could buy the book yeah. um, and read it. Or the flip side of that is maybe you lived in a town. It was a one movie town, you know, theater town, like one screen or whatever. Not all the movies got there, but you'd been hearing things about a movie, yeah. yep. and and you were able to go and buy the novelization and read it. So I think maybe that's where it started. And, and how shitty this sounds. So apologies to Krista Faust and anybody else who, who writes novelizations. Like, I almost feel like novelizations are one of those things that had a reason to exist. And no one ever thought of just not doing anymore. Like, although there's no necessity for it at all anymore. <laughs> like, there's no, you know what I mean? Like. All right. Well, I've pulled up the Wikipedia article for novelizations just to get a taste of, um, like what and like your take is dead on as far as like when novelizations were first introduced it was the you know your way to rewatch basically 
Um, in, in more modern days, uh, it, like Godzilla, the 2014 movie was um, uh, novelized, and that was on the New York Times bestseller list. A novelization, which is pretty crazy if you think about it, but they said this has been attributed to the novel's appeal to fans. About 50% of novelizations are sold to people who have watched the film and want to explore its characters further or to reconnect to the enthusiasm they experience when watching the film. So it's like uh, it's like you were saying with how there was more um, depth to the characters in the book. Mm-hmm. Like if you enjoyed the movie and you wanted to see what else um, there was to the story, that's what the novelization does for the modern audience, it sounds like. I, yeah, and see, and I don't, how do I say this? I don't get that. And my my thought process is this and and this relates back to novels as well if i've seen the movie i feel like reading the book is a waste of time because uh (laughs) assuming well assuming that it it stays even a little bit faithful like i know what the end result is uh i'm not it's not like a roller coaster ride it's more like a buggy ride you know what i mean so i go in watching a a movie or or reading a book and i I know very little about it right i know what the whatever the synopsis or the trailer showed me and i go in and i watch it and i go oh man these characters and oh this action and oh this climax and oh all right if i already know all that am i going to sit down and spend three to five hours or eight hours if it's a longer novel you know to to you know, kind of have had it spoiled for me already. So I, I, yeah, I struggle with that. And again, I know that other people have different ways of looking at things. It's just why I've never done. I think back, it occurred to me now, the one novelization I do remember reading was actually for a video game. Yeah. And this was a number of years ago, 10, 12, 15 years ago. I remember reading the Metal Gear Solid novelization, which was kind of cool because it took a video game that I played, but then gave me, uh, which is a very story rich video game already, but gave me that, um, that look at the story that maybe I didn't take a look at because I was inside the story playing it. Sure. So it was kind of, you know, but that's the only other one that I remember really reading. That was a, a novelization that was of a video game, which I think is a little different than I just watched a movie. Now I'm going to read the book. So thinking of it from the publishing perspective, though, you've basically already got the story written. So if you can pay an author like a, a flat fee just to take that, um, completed story and, you know, fluff it up with some like, you know, descriptors and stuff like that. It's gotta be a low cost way to take something that's already got recognition tied to it because people understand it's a movie and flipping it to another revenue stream. So from a publishing perspective, it's probably super easy to be like, Hey author, while you're in between books that you write for yourself, Here's ten that. Sorry, that's probably a ridiculous number. Here's five thousand dollars or whatever. Um, Adapt this screenplay into a novel, and um, we'll sell ten thousand copies of it or whatever. Yeah, I know. My other thought is that at least nowadays it's a merchandising thing and not a publishing thing. You know what I mean? So one more piece of advertising. Sure. So they're like, all right, so what can we do? Uh, do we think a Holland March uh, action figure will sell? And someone would be like, no, I don't really think we have that kind of appeal. And they're like, well, we novelization. That's good for netting us 20 grand. And you're like, oh, okay. You know what I mean? So I feel like it's not part of the art. And I'm not saying, obviously, the person who, who does the novelization, in this case, Charles Ardai, um, I think did a great job. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not questioning his skill. I'm just thinking that I don't think it's, uh, in quotation marks, for the art <laughs> you know, for the, the right. person who owns the, the rights to the um, to the film or to the script. And you get the crossover appeal for people who like we read the Rob Zombie thing because we like Brian Evanson's writing. And so, we... oh, there's no way we would have read that novelization if it wasn't. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a handful of people it could have been, but it was definitely because we know Brian Evanson. That's yeah. Yeah. So maybe there's like the Christopher Foss fans out there who are like, mm-hmm. you know, I like her, you know, original crime stuff. Um, and I like the ways that she writes. Let's see how she can do with a novelization. And then they just keep picking up her novelizations because of that. So, And, and I have to imagine that, um, that that's also a decision that's made, that you get a Brian Evanson or a Krista Faust because you know there's already a little bit of, of recognition there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have a little momentum. Yeah, versus paying someone else a lot less. 
Um, you know, the, the, you know, we've had plenty of authors on this podcast that we've read that no one's ever heard of, but they're good authors, you know, yeah. or they've sold very little or they're only known in very small circles. They could do just as good a job, I'm sure. Um, but you go, oh, this Evanson guy, you know, he's got he's got some awards under his belt and stuff. Let's see if we could throw him, you know, whatever, five, ten grand to, to novelize something. So yeah. the other thing that's really weird about novelizations, and I don't have a specific example, but I do know that I've seen it before. It's the movie that's made into, I'm sorry, it's the book that's made into a movie that then has a novelization of the movie mm-hmm. that's not the original novel. I think it happens a lot with James Bond movies. God damn it, man. What a crazy fucking thing that is, right? Yeah. You've already got the source material. And then again, I don't know how closely the source material matches the right. the, the movie. Um, but then you go back and you write another book that's about the movie that the movie is about the book. <laughs> Dude, can you imagine the novelization of the movie The Ninth Gate? <laughs> oh my god. Well, but that's that but that's a weird one too, because that book or that movie strays so far away from the source right. material. Exactly. That quite literally the original the book was called The Club Dumas. Yep. And they've removed any in the movie there is absolutely zero reference to what that title refers to in the book, which is a big part of it. Right. So yeah, that's a that's a really weird one. Yeah. Yeah, and apparently Roman Polanski's a rapist, so there's that too. It's 2019, we have to mention that stuff now. Did he do that movie? Yeah, that's, you know a, that's, that's a Roman Polanski okay. movie. Okay, I didn't know, yeah. yeah. That movie, I didn't like that movie at all, by the way. <laughs> Just, I was very, very, um, I was very, very angry at how far that, that was off the, the you know, the, yeah. the pace from, from the book that I really loved. Well, it doesn't, yeah. I mean, like, honestly, that movie... You, it will never be good unless it's considered an entirely separate piece of work than the the book that inspired it. Yeah, I remember having a conversation with someone about that, and then being like, "Oh, I really like that movie," and I was like, "That's only because you never read the book." Like, there's yeah, and that's exactly. not and that's not one of those like the book wasn't as good as the movie. It's like a goddamn different story. Well, I saw the movie years before reading the book, um, and so I had I had an appreciation for the movie as its own thing. And then you told me that it was based on the club Dumas. And then I read it and I was like, Holy shit, this isn't even the same thing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's weird. Um, anything else on novelizations before we move on? I don't think we're going to be doing novelizations as a regular feature. <laughs> Although, that is like very accurate. <laughs> I guess the thing for me is aside from your Walgreens anecdote, where do you get, novelizations how do you learn about them like it has to be like a impulse by rack in the store thing because no one there's not a novelization section at barnes and noble and there's hardly lists on amazon which is pretty weird because i tried really hard to find a good list of of novelizations so how do people like what if you're just a diehard novelization fan what do you do how do you find them oh i'm sure there's a subreddit Oh my god! I never thought of that. That's what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> um, I seem to remember, and and I don't, um, I don't spend any time even when I'm at the airport and in the bookstores anymore because I've really just gotten to the point where I like going into a bookstore once in a while, but being you know almost 100 percent digital, I just don't even wander in. I used to remember seeing them at the airport too, and that might still be another place, which again is always an impulse buy, right? Like nobody's plan is to go to the airport and then literally pay full <laughs> price on the cover for something. Like that's nobody's plan of action. That's something you do when you're stuck in the airport and you're like, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, look, there's a bookstore, you know, or mm-hmm. not even bookstores anymore. What's that company called that, uh, that now have all the books? Like there used to be dedicated bookstores in the airport, and now they're all part of, uh, oh, hell. I don't remember what they're called, but it's that chain that only exists at airports. Oh, it's like something and something or. Yeah, yeah, it'll come to me eventually. But yeah, the the place where you pay four dollars for a bottle of Diet Coke before you get on your plane, that place. Mm -hmm. So they're they're, They've taken over the bookstore thing where when I was much younger, I remember there being bookstores. That's all they sold was books. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, that's what that's the other place I remember seeing. So, yeah, definitely an impulse buy. And then there's some freaky, weird you know dark web group that just talks about novelizations somewhere if if like if the worst happens and this podcast stops going at some point i uh, i'm just gonna start a novelization podcast 
<laughs> oh my god, god but that, that's but you're, you're huh, it's weird like for me i think that you would say that i'm a a book lover far more than a movie lover yeah for you i almost feel like it's the other way around so i feel like a lot of novelizations would get shit on more often if that's what you were doing <laughs> um I, I see why you would say that i think that i just obsess about the movies that really work for me so and that's and that's possible and i listen i have movies that and and again depending on the yeah, audience well, yeah, but depending on the audience, I do know a couple of people that when I see a movie, like you may never hear about a movie I saw because I just know it's probably not your thing, but that I share that bond with a couple of people. There are movies that Jesse and I talk about that you and I never talk about. You know what I mean? Like, because I know that we have something in common in movies that we like. Yeah. Uh, you know, so which which brings me to really the only other thing. And the only reason we're talking about this is because I mentioned it on the last episode and I don't want to be that guy that says, hey, we'll talk about this next time and then don't talk about it. And I'm. Um, pretty sure i know where you fall on this but we both watched under the silver lake which came um not as a recommendation from jesse but he'd asked if i saw it and i said no i hadn't but then i watched the trailer and i was like all right all right i'm gonna watch this because this looks like a nerdier version of the movie brick which i do know we both like mm-hmm. so we both watched under the silver lake about an hour apart and then we never talked about it <laughs> so <laughs> like we never it didn't come up in discussion at all so um, give me your, your take on the Under the Silver Lake movie. So it's really funny the way that the conversation has happened so far in this episode because it ties in. Um, I was chatting casually with Jesse about the the movie, um, mostly because he stays up way later at night than you do, Livius. Um, and it, it, we're just kind of giving our general impression. So I'll do that first. My general impression of the movie was, it was all right. It, it, it got real weird. Um, but I liked um, a lot of the individual elements of the movie, but the the feeling I got from the movie was if I had to kind of liken it to another thing, like you said, it had a brick feel to it in, in the when you saw a preview for it or whatever. Mm-hmm. For me, it was like a hipster California Ninth Gate. All right, all right, I can see that. Based on that. the whole, like, there's like this guy catches a whiff of something bigger, and it's on the periphery of his life, and like at some point becomes so dedicated to just seeing it through, like that kind of a thing. Yep. Um, that's and it it's just unending plotting through whatever comes up against him, um, and and kind of pushing him to extremes, and so that that's the parallel I drew is like it's a. It's like a hipster ninth gate. Yeah. Um, ultimately, I had the same feeling about this movie that I had about the ninth gate. So they at least have that in common. Um, <laughs> I, well, here's, so I, I see the trailer. I go, oh, this looks, this looks interesting. Um, I'm going to watch it. So I sit down, I watch it. And, you know, for the first 45 minutes, maybe even an hour, there's so many weird little things that go on. And I'm like, all right, all right. This is going to be some fucking genius shit when this all gets tied together at the end. Mm -hmm. And it never fucking happens. And it's not (laughs) it's not like there are a couple of things that are left undone. It's like a minuscule part of things that happen in that movie actually get wrapped up. It reminded me a little bit of one Q eight four in that way. Sure. Where I was like, well, what what about that thing that what about that super cool thing that happened? Like we just never addressed you know the whole like and you know i'm not i don't think i'm getting anything away but the under the silver lake comic book yep it is basically never anything related to it is never addressed like the story for people who are listening is there's like this kind of i guess a hipster kid i guess i was gonna say a weird kid but he's not really that weird um kind of plodding through his life and and he um kind of briefly hooks up with a neighbor girl and then he goes back to see her the next day and she's gone all the shit's moved out and whatever and he winds up searching for her in a in a i don't want to say detective style but you know kind of in a detective noir kind of style goes around um you know get finds clues goes around asking people about her and stuff and through the course of the book there's all these weird things that happen that either he's involved in or that happen around him that he's not involved in like there's like the whole dog killer thing yeah 
and I kept waiting for this movie. I think at one point I looked, you know, on the little status bar, you know, it tells you how much longer you have left. And I had the realization of, oh, there's no fucking way we're going to touch yeah. on, on, on all this stuff. And I got to the end and I was like, we didn't touch on any of this stuff. And the final result had nothing to do with any of the things that were leading us in the, like, yeah. you know what I mean? So that's where it was super, super disappointing for me. There were individual elements that I thought, oh, this is going to be really, really good. And it just didn't never materialized. Yeah, we reached a part in the movie where I was like, I, I have zero hope that anything will get resolved. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it was yep. probably halfway through. Um, yeah. Did you, so if you had to put it up against uh, the other kind of well-known movie that this dude made, um, It Follows? Um, I did not know that that's another movie he made. I absolutely love It, it Follows. Was it he or she? Anyway. Um, oh, I'm, I apologize. I have no idea. I, I didn't a, even know. What's well, Andrew Garfield? I guess so I'm gonna. I, that's uh, the guy, right? The so the writer director is David Robert Mitchell. I didn't know if it was okay. a, a woman or a man who made the, them. So, um, yeah, made it follows, and then I'm sure other stuff. But this is the other one under the Silver Lake. It follows far superior in so many ways. Um, I, I got the kind of like a similar feel like i think the tone kind of in certain ways was similar but this movie just didn't do it for me man i feel like we talked about it follows on the podcast at one point um there's a weird thing that happens and it follows and i know a lot well a lot of people are like oh it's about sexually transmitted diseases or whatever and i i, I choose to just look past um correlations to other things and i try to take a story for what it is but there's that weird shit that happens in that movie like it clearly takes place in the now right um but all the cars are super old mm -hmm. and the girl's got this futuristic compact like a makeup compact oh, yeah that's like a that's like an e-reader or whatever yeah yeah so it felt like and there are parts of that movie where i expect it to be a weird dream sequence because that's exactly how i would explain it dream to somebody i'd be like dude me and you were like hanging out at your house but we were teenagers and it was 2019 but like all the cars are from the 80s and you had this weird e-reader like that's what a somebody's weird dream sounds like right yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so um but yeah there's oh there's always been something that was one of my favorite uh you know for, for that year for sure my favorite horror movie and probably for the subsequent two or three years after that i mean i really really liked um i really really liked it follows a lot it's good so uh, I don't remember if we talked about this or not. Um, that are we are we good with uh, Under the Silver Lake? Yeah, yeah. The other kind of recent movie that that follows that like this is a follow up movie um, uh, to a guy who made um, a, a note a notable movie recently is Velvet Buzzsaw. I have not seen it. <clears throat> Mixed reviews on that one though. From anyway. Yeah. Yeah, really yeah. slow, right? Is it a really slow grind? That's one of the things I've seen said about it. I guess it depends. Like, I never, it's not fast paced, <laughs> but I thought yeah. it was like evenly paced. Um, it, I, I never felt it was slow. But the other movie that that person, the person who made Velvet Buzzsaw, also made Nightcrawler with um, Jake Gyllenhaal. Mm -hmm. Yep, I've seen that and one, so and I, I like that movie. I like Nightcrawler. That one drew some serious acclaim, and now everybody's thinking, oh, the Nightcrawler guy is making this weird horror art critic movie. This is going to be great. And and so it's interesting to see the reaction. So that's another one that's like, you know, a recent uh, follow-up uh, film. So I'd be interesting to, interested to hear, I don't know if you plan on, on watching it, but your, your take between the two. I really enjoyed Velvet Buzzsaw, but I feel like it's one of those movies that like, it's got a narrow audience and it's like I'm dead setter in that audience. Yeah. I thought about watching it. Then I saw the things about it being kind of a slow grind and I don't do well with slow grind movies. Yeah. Um, with one exception. You like the and Jack I can't... Hammer movies? Yes. <laughs> one exception. Um, and I know this is one of those you love it or hate it movies. And now I can't remember the name. So I'm going to Google lost in translation. And I've, I've had people tell me they're really surprised that I like that movie. Um, talk about a slow grind movie that that's one, but I thought that one was, was the, the grind part of it 
um, was obviously very intentional. And I think it really kind of added um, overall to the feel of that movie. But other than that, I can't think of another movie that's super slow that I actually enjoyed. Ninth Gate. Just kidding. And, uh, God damn it. <laughs> Johnny Depp. That may have been the beginning of the end for Johnny Depp as far as his film career went, too, if you think about it. Well, I mean, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies would be the yeah. obvious. Well, yeah, well, I was going to say, but I, I consider that for sure the death of, like, that's when he went into doing, you know, basically Disney movies. Right. Like, budget. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, it's all his critical stuff was way behind him. No more Crybaby. Uh, no, no, no more Crybaby. You know what I did stumble on last night on uh, on cable and wound up watching the last probably half of, almost half of Tombstone? Hell yeah, dude. Has an actor ever been better in a role ever? Ever than Val Kilmer was in Tombstone. Never. It's never happened. Never. There's there's never. Never. And nobody will fight you on that. No. Like, you no, know how like, some things people have different opinions on? Mm-hmm. Universally, yep. nobody will fight you on that. Yeah. I mean, the rest of the movie's fine and all, but his performance in that, it, it really, what it comes down to, not to turn this into a review of Tombstone, <laughs> is I think it's been... his relationship with Wyatt Earp. And not so much just his character, but that real kind of like blase friendship that they have that's so deep. Mm-hmm. But it's like they, they never have. I mean, up until the very end of the movie, they don't have like a deep conversation. It's always like they're just kind of around one another. And they're yeah. like, that's good enough. Yeah. So that movie and, and that whole uh, not to get too deep into Tombstone, but like, yeah. You know the moment that it's portrayed to the audience is uh, right after the uh, the shootout with with Curly Bill, mm-hmm. and um, uh, he, you know Doc's having a fit, and they're like, "I don't know why you do this," you know, and he says, "Wyatt Earp's my friend," and the guy says, "Oh, I got a bunch of friends," and he just says, "I don't." Yep. Oh yeah. Oh, so good. So good. So good. And Dana Delaney, top of her hotness in that movie. Yeah. At the absolute <laughs> pinnacle. Of her beauty is in that movie. Oh man, I, I <laughs> I've been waiting 432 episodes to talk about Tombstone. <laughs> yeah, <sighs> just I was flipping channels and I was like, oh, it's the shootout at the OK Corral, and that's why I didn't actually finish watching um, Nice Guys last night because I watched like <laughs> half of it like kind of late the night before, and I was like, oh, I'll watch the rest tonight. I got like exactly an hour into it. I was like, I'll watch the rest tomorrow, and then I was flipping channels and I was like, oh tombstone well i know where i'm gonna spend this hour it's not gonna be with the nice guys it's totally gonna be with dana delaney and uh, val kilmer great that's good stuff all right no more movie talk fuck let's not talk about movies for a while like weeks like that was more movie talk than than i'm comfortable with (laughs) let's talk about books next up on the podcast the maltese jordans which we talked about a little bit Mm -hmm. last year when we had an evening with seth harwood um, and at that point, he was doing the audio version through his Patreon page. Um, I got to listen to the first few chapters of that. Well, next week, we are going to read the entire book. And most likely, the following week will be another evening with Seth Harwood. An evening with Seth Harwood, part two. The Very sequel. Exciting. Electric Boogaloo, whatever it's going to be called. Um, that's what's up for the next couple of weeks for us. Rob, do you have anything before we go? Uh, just watch Tombstone, I guess. Totally watch Tombstone. <laughs> uh, Showtime. Showtime? Is that where I saw it last night? I think it was on Showtime. So flip through your Showtime and see if Tombstone's playing. There you go. Until next time, I'm Livia Snudden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep watching Tombstone. <laughs>